Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 5-26-2021, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for this time we have this evening. We thank you for life, health, and strength. And Father, we pray for those who are traveling, uh, asking for traveling mercies. We pray for uh, Word is Truth uh, members, wherever they are, uh, asking you uh, to watch over them, uh, keep, uh, keep them safe wherever they are. Also, Father, we are praying for those who are still grieving at this hour for the loss of loved ones. Father, we know we all have to leave here at some point. Uh, we just don't know exactly when, but as each leave falls from to the ground, Father, we feel it. We feel the sorrow and the pain and the mourning that is associated with death. So we ask for comfort for the families and for those who have directly impacted, not only with uh, death in the family, but with COVID and sickness, asking for your watchful eye and care over them. All of this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so um, as you all know, our study is in Romans chapter 9, and we are trying to get to uh, through, uh, we're just breaking through some of the, uh, I'd say, pivotal passages that are there. Uh, today, we're hoping to look at 9-11 which says, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, uh, not, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older shall serve the younger. Now, I just read verse 12 as well, but we're kind of chopping through all of that um, in our notes. So you have some notes. I know we are starting a little late, so we're just going to get right into the thought of it. And uh, you have some notes. And in your notes, we have these words. It is nice to see how God's marvelous grace is seen in the passage before us. We can clearly see God's grace as it relates to salvation, but now we are witnessing a different use of grace. We can begin to understand God's way of dealing with man is grace. So that's one thing to note. And when I think about grace, grace is for those who are disqualified, who don't have any merit. You cannot earn grace by having some sort of privilege or merit or special unction or anything you might want to say. There is no, uh, when it comes to grace, the only people who can get grace are those who are disqualified and, and have no merit whatsoever. And that is fallen man for sure. So we, we have a lot of uh, phrases here ahead of us and we'll look at, look at these, but just keep in mind what we are witnessing is uh, heavily directed toward the Jew and Israel. So what we want to find out from the reasoning 
And sometimes it's hard for us to, to grasp that reasoning. But what we do have is Paul's rendering of it, being a, someone who has the background and culture of Israel. He's able to go in and dissect what the Jews properly need and, and, and is able to deliver the perspective of Jewish culture, Jewish thought, right? And, and echo their concerns. And I think that's great because it's objective and it allows us to kind of look and see for ourselves what the case is. And some of, some of those words that we're going to read, we can ask ourselves these questions. Does it make sense? Well, does, what does God do when Israel says this? Right? We, we get to hear the answers and work it out for ourselves just like Israel does. So it, it, it is a benefit to us to know what these passages are, especially since so many other people are making points about these passages that are related to salvation. Uh, and if you say that God calls certain people for salvation, then obviously you have also um, dug a hole that I don't think God can get out of. So you got problems. God judges people for what? Anyway, we'll get well let's 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 start. Okay, so Here's the verse, though they, were, though they were not yet born is the first point, uh, first phrase. So this is a reference to Isaac and Rebekah. They had some inside information about the sons to be born. So this is good. Uh, just like God told Abraham, you're going to have a son. And then later, many years later, he told Abraham, no, it's going to be by Sarah. I know you're trying a lot of different ways, but you're going to have a son, and Sarah will have the son. And so Abraham, after he collected himself, he, he put faith in what God said. He trusted in that. And so he, he understood that the promise, earlier promise, was that your, your descendants will be, you know, Look up at the stars. He, you know, he said all that. And we covered a lot of those passages in Genesis to make sure. Uh, Paul referenced them here in Romans, but we traced them back to Genesis and found, found them as well. So not only did God prophesy over uh, Abraham's life, Abraham and Sarah, but he's now prophesying over Isaac and Rebekah. And even before the twins are born, First of all, he knows they're twins. They didn't have uh, ultrasound back then. So obviously what God is using is his wisdom and knowledge and foresight to understand what's going on. And we could, as we're going to say here, his foreknowledge as well. But we'll get to that point. So first, the first thought is just that. They had some inside information here. And when you're dealing with God... God lets you know there's some supernatural uh, abilities that he has uh, when he, he can tell you what's going to happen. He's gonna, he, in fact, in Isaiah, he says, what about those uh, gods of wood and, and stone that you have built? Can they tell you what's going to happen? 
let them prophesy and tell you what, what's going to come to pass with accuracy. And that is a part of uh, how we know God is involved in a thing. So point B, God knew the boys before they were born. We could say this is the foreknowledge of God, just like in Romans 8.29. In fact, I'll read Romans 8.29. It says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So God did not foreknow everybody. Foreknowledge, as we already covered, is not the same thing as omniscience. Omniscience knows all, everything, about everything, uh, and down to the smallest detail about things. Foreknowledge deals with God's eternal purpose and God's implementation of that purpose and him, his using certain agents, agents or individuals to accomplish that purpose. So foreknowledge for God is very specific whereas omniscience is general, uh, general knowledge about everything. And, and so, as a reminder, God's foreknowledge, and this is taken from the notes that we had back when we covered this in Romans 8.29. So God's foreknowledge is related to those who have a definite role in, in the eternal purpose of God. And then some verses to consider. We already read... Romans 8.29, we know what 11.2 talks about. Uh, did God cast away his people, which he foreknew? Which he foreknew. And he's talking about Israel. Israel was foreknown. God saw them before time began. So when we're talking about God knew somebody, this is information that we can say happened before creation. Now, we, we've talked about it from the standpoint of us, right? God knew us before time began. God knew us before creation. But he also knew Israel before creation. So they're part of the plan. Remember, God didn't have like piecemeal. Like he didn't say, okay, I, I know this part of the plan, so I, that's good enough for me to go ahead and start creating all things. I'll work it out. The rest of it out later. No, the whole plan, and we're, I think this is a point to make, the whole plan was conceived by God. And, uh, oh, actually, this is coming up in point E, but we'll get to it. So uh, we read all these scriptures already, and I don't, I don't think it's necessary to go over them. You have the notes, and if you would like to go over them on your own, that would be a pretty good exercise, I would say. But, um, so we saw God's foreknowledge as, uh, it, as it relates to these twins. God knew about them before they were born. Even Jeremiah is a good example. He says, before I was in my mother's womb, you knew me. So these are scriptures that speak of, why does God know a particular person? Does he know every single person? Yes, he does. You know why? Because he has to give him life. But that's not the point for Jeremiah saying that. That's not the point for God saying this to Rebecca. Uh, that, the, you know, I understand, you're, you're going to have twins and this is how it's going to go down. And, and all of this is before 
the twins are born. God is saying, they're in my plan. That's why I know them in this particular way. So point D, God's foreknowledge is information God revealed about his purposes before creation. And I could use Ephesians 1.4, which talks about our foreknowledge. But really, any foreknowledge or predestination or any of that has to do with the plan of God. So Israel is as much of the plan of God as the church is, with one exception. The church is God's eternal purpose. So Israel and Gentiles and all these other things that happen along the way are component parts of God's eternal purpose. But God's eternal purpose is what God did when he called those here in the church. And that's what's going on now. That's the, the crux of the matter, as you might want to say. And, and what is happening with us is we are, uh, as we live and breathe, being conformed into the image of his son by being joined to him through the baptism of the spirit. That never happened for any other person ever before. So, so yes, Israel is there and, and all God's plan marches forward. But we are uh, the climax of it. Everything else is supporting what, what God's purpose in this election is. So, but as we're covering these verses, obviously we're talking about Israel. And so, uh, to note the entire plan, this is point E, to note the entire plan was conceived by God before he created anything. So when, when we look at Hebrews 11.3, which I'm sure you know, um, Hebrews 11.3 says, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So even though we have the actual implementing of creation here, right? How God did it by his command and so forth. <laughs> That's one factor. But what we don't see is the purpose in Hebrews 11.3. Why did God do it? Why did he form the universe by his command? And we know that now. And we're learning about words like election and predestination and being called and chosen and all those things. We're learning about those things that because it's a part of the plan of God from eternity past before he created all things. So the entire plan includes Israel and you know the whole thing that, that he implements going forward is a part of his plan. Some of them are just component parts. We now are, God is actually getting what he wants. And then after the church age was over, he will continue human history where there will be Israel, tribulation, there will be Christ coming back in the second coming, the millennial reign. All of this was prophesied in the Old Testament. So revelation, you know, all that is not part of the mystery. Right? That's That's part of Israel's history but what God did for us is not only did he give us life in this world at this particular time but he knew we were going to put our faith in the son so uh, he joined us to his son 
like it says, he raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2. And sure enough, we are united to Christ and we are not of this world. So while we had our origins here, yes, but God took us and made something of us that is out of this world. And that's what we have in Christ. So let's keep going. Uh, hopefully to understand that point that we don't see Israel as some something that's not really connected or integrated with God's eternal purpose. Point two. So though they though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. That's the next phrase. So first thought is even though God knows what the twins' lives would be. He is making the point to us that his choice is not based on their deeds. In other words, they didn't earn it. So when we think, there's a lot of ways we can look at this, and we're, we're going to try to cover this in these points. But the twins didn't do anything good or bad. So listen, they didn't earn their calling. They don't deserve their calling. They don't, this, they didn't merit their calling. God doesn't owe them a calling. This is how we have to start thinking about it. Why would we have a statement like this? That they had done nothing either good or bad. God is saying it doesn't depend on Jacob or Esau at all. That's what he's saying. At all. It depends on God. So when we think about it, it's hard for us to understand it if we don't see God as a person able to make and choose uh, his way, his decisions, and his actions. If we see God as just, okay, well, he does what we want him to do. Uh, he has to bless us all the time. and He has to just be there for us. And that's what he's, his job is then you, you, you don't see that God does have a will. God does have a plan, right? He's not just here to bless us, to make us feel good. He's got, even though when he does, his plan does move forward, when we see it move forward, we do benefit greatly. There's, there's no doubt about it. He has our best interests at heart. He is not here to harm us. He's here to execute his plan. In the process of executing his plan, we are chosen in him before the creation of the world. And that's amazing. So it benefits us, yes. But if we don't know what the benefit is or we don't understand the plan, it, it does very little. So, But the point here is, before the twins were born, they hadn't done anything good or bad. So God's letting us know that it's all, it's, it's based on his choice. It's not based on their deeds. And that's clear because they weren't here yet. I mean, it'd be one thing if, if they were born and God said, let me watch them and see which one's going to be the best. And he watches them and he sees that Esau is, is, is the one, and well, Esau was the older one, as we know, and he should have been the one who received it because that was the way. The, old, the eldest child received the blessing. And then, uh, you know, and that's just the way it went. But God is saying, 
I'm just going to choose Jacob. Now you could say, well, why did he choose Jacob? We could ask those questions. And we're, we're going to get to that a little bit more later. So point B, God is making a choice from his sovereignty. They did nothing good to earn the call. And they did nothing bad to disqualify them from the call. So God made the call. He, he chose Jacob over Esau, as we know. And it, think about it. He didn't earn it. So why are we here? Why are we here? It's because um, we know that the Jews thought that they were entitled because of the law. We're going to get to that point. That's why God has to emphasize this. He's, he's trying to show uh, Israel that the fact that you are Israel is not based on your will. It's not based on your adherence. It's not based on even that I owe you something. It's based on my sovereignty that I chose Israel through the process of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's, that's what it is. So point C, just playing with the words a little bit, good and bad. And then we know from Romans 3.12, there is no one who does good, not even one. So God is not necessarily saying good or bad in the sense of, uh, you know, how Israel thought about it. Israel thought about it that because they had the law, they could do some good. That's what they... That's really how they see it. We have the law. Obviously, we can do some good. But God is saying, that's wrong. Right? There is no one who does good, not even one. We're all born dead in our transgressions and sins. There is no one of us who is righteous. There's no, no one of us who seek God. And that includes Jacob and Esau. So for God to choose Jacob over Esau, it speaks to the fact that it doesn't have anything to do with the boys. It has something to do with God's sovereign choice. Now, like I said, unless you recognize that God is a person and God gets to make decisions just like we do, then you'll probably not understand that or have a problem with that. If you just think God is here to bless us, then that would not fly for you. Point D, so then, this statement is to set aside the receiving of the law and its works as privilege. The Jews thought their attempted law-keeping brought them favor. So, when you look at Romans, I want to go to 3, because I want to look at some of these verses, and, and just see them from a different perspective. 3, 9. 3, 9, and then it says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. So there's no difference here when it comes to Jews and Gentiles as it relates to their standing with God. The only way they're going to be uh, right with God, we could say, we'll just plainly say, is that they believe in Christ. Now, if it was before the cross, it was that they would have to believe in Christ to come, meaning that the substitute would come and substitute for them, and they would receive righteousness, just like their father Abraham did. 
That's something they should understand. It's not something that Abraham, Abraham didn't keep the law, but he is a patriarch. Uh, Isaac didn't keep the law. There was no law, no Mosaic law to keep. So then verse 20, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, in God's sight by the works of the law. So now think about this. The Jews had some serious problems. And uh, you have to ask yourself, who is God talking to here? Who do you think he's talking to? He has to be talking to the Jew. Because the Gentile didn't even have the law. So the problem is the Jew has in his mind that somehow having the law is some sort of privilege to him. And his attempts at keeping the law is also, uh, God is, sees that as meritorious, which is all wrong. No, <laughs> when it comes to grace, what we were talking about, salvation by grace, you can't merit that in any way. You don't deserve it. Where did God find you? You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and so forth and so on. And Adam all die, right? Because of Adam, one man sinned and everybody else was dead. One man sinned, everybody else developed a sin nature. One man sinned, everybody else in him was condemned. That's the bad news. So that's what we have to reckon with. So it's not their attempts at keeping the law. And then if we go to 10, 3... So it says, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So notice, they didn't know the righteousness of God. Remember we were talking about Abraham and, and Abraham believed in the Lord and was credited to him for righteousness. He didn't believe. When did he believe? Was it before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? Well, it was before. So what is, which is to say... Abraham's works didn't have anything to do with his faith. The Jew needed to understand that. The Jew needed to exclude their works and put their trust in Christ. So when we read, therefore, by the works of the law, no person shall be justified in his sight. Well, the Gentiles don't have the law. He's talking directly to the Jew. And this is a problem because why is he talking to the Jew this way? Because the Jew needs this information. They are the ones who are trying to be righteous through keeping the law. So it was a problem, big problem. And so we're getting to the, this whole thought here. So point E, the Jews saw themselves as righteous and Gentiles as unrighteous. So we know Romans 3, 21 and 22. Let's read that. Um, so it says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And this is what Paul adds. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Now that, to the Jew. These verses are direct slaps in the face to the Jew. One, Paul says, no person is going to be justified by doing what the law says. That is literally where they lived. 
by doing what the... Paul, Paul was a Pharisee, just remember. Pharisees were experts, professional religious people at keeping the law, digging out every little uh, nuance they could find to say, well, we better keep that too, just in case. We better keep this one over here just so we don't break that one and so that, that one we don't end up in trouble over here. Well, they just created law upon law. And, and then they kept them. They thought, they thought that they were keeping them. In the, from, but they were keeping them from the power of their sin nature. So they were deceived by thinking that they somehow were righteous. At one point, Paul says, as far as the law is concerned, blameless. That's what I am, blameless. I kept the law perfectly. How could you have done that? So you missed you miss this one scripture we read at the end where it says, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Wow. We, come, we, we, we see ourselves. But that's not what they saw. Through arrogance, they saw that they were blameless. But the law, by looking at the law, you should be conscious that you are, in fact, condemned a sinner and spiritually dead. That's what you should come to, to the realization of. So, point E, 2E is where we are. Um... The Jews saw themselves as righteous and the Gentiles as unrighteous. When Paul laid that out and says, hey, even if a Gentile believes, they're going to have this righteousness. Imagine the Jews' face, all the work, all the stuff that's in their culture, all the keeping of, uh, all the distinctions of, that the law made uh, of things that they had to do or, you know, they everything was different. They were peculiar people. And yet, they, all of this, instead of help them helping God to to pr present the gospel to the world, they basically separated themselves from those in the world and thought they were exclusive. And that was not the case at all. <laughs> not the case. So we're continuing on in our notes. So we're, we're pressing forward. We got a little bit more to go. So here's point three and had done nothing either good or bad, point three is, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So in order that, right? Let's think about why would he say in order that? It's like, that's the conjunction hina in the Greek, so that the Jews might understand God's sovereignty created Israel, and he continues to be free in choosing the church. So what we're trying to do is get into what is behind uh, the reasoning here from Paul, right? He says they didn't do it. These God saw this. They didn't. The twins didn't do either nothing, either good or bad, in order that so that the that God's purpose of election might continue or stand. So think about it. In order that, and I'm just trying to help us understand this. In order that the Jews might understand God's sovereignty. Why else would he tell them that, the, that Jacob would be over Esau? Before they were, has nothing to do with the boys themselves, has to do with God's sovereignty in creating Israel. He, he's having it his way, and as I said before, his fingerprints are all over it. So point B, God's purpose. In order that God's purpose... What do we mean God's purpose? His purpose in forming the nation Israel. 
Now, we can talk about God's purpose for us as well. But the nation Israel is the immediate context. If we got to kind of see things the way the Apostle Paul is seeing them, he's building this case to defend against the Jews' accusation. So, so it's right. It's the forming God's purpose in the forming of national Israel, and then the broader context would be God's eternal purpose, which has to do with us. Which it says, His intent was that now through the church, this is Ephesians three ten and eleven, through the church, the manifold wisdom might be made known to the rulers and authorities and heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished. In Christ so so all of that is us right God didn't reveal that to Israel but he revealed it to us so we could say as even though he's Paul's talking about Israel God's purpose for us is even a higher purpose than that which he had for Israel because Israel is a supporting or component part of what God intended for the church and that's how we we need to see this we're not trying to make ourselves pump our chests and you know, make ourselves somehow better. The point is, is that uh, God has an eternal purpose. We didn't ask him to choose us to be in this age. Nobody knew it. It was hidden in God. Israel didn't know it. So nobody can boast that somehow we, God owes us this or, or somehow that we have merited the fact that, well, he must have looked down the corridors of time and saw the goodness that was in me and that's why he chose me. And all this stuff people say is wrong because it belies the, the sovereignty of God. God is saying over and over, I'm the one who chose. He, he did this in the previous set of uh, parents with Abraham and Sarah, with the birth of Isaac. God says, no, I'm going to have it my way. He's doing the same thing here with uh, Isaac and Rebekah. So what is that to tell us? So his purpose and election might stand, might continue. He's trying to tell us that he's the one who gets to choose how Israel came on the scene. Right? Israel is not by um, their purpose, their uh, specific doing or, or effort. It has to do with the calling of God, which is by grace, as it were. So point, uh, point C is our notes, 3C, election. God will accomplish his eternal purpose. That's, that's what election is, him choosing certain ones to accomplish. Election is the way God, he chooses agents to accomplish his purposes. In forming the nation Israel, God chose individuals, or we could say patriarchs, over generations of time to form his nation, Israel. And that's when we think of election, we're talking about special choosing. So what do we need to do is look into the word election and see, this is the word that we have. And a couple things, it, this word derives from another word. So I'm gonna pull in both words so we can kind of get the meaning of what this word election is all about. So I'm just gonna read some of the definitions Electole, uh, eklage is the uh, Greek word, divine selection, abstractly or correctly, chosen, election, 
and that comes from strong. And then uh, we also have from eklegomai, which we should notice is in the that verse comes from uh, that word ekloge comes from this word eklegomai, and this is the key. It's in the middle voice. Now, when we say middle voice, that means that, well, there are three voices. We've explained this before. Let's take some time right now because it's important. Uh, so there's the active voice, there's the passive voice, and then there's the middle voice. The active voice speaks of the subject performing action on an object. Right? So it's like if me, if, let's say it's the active voice is me hitting you. Right. Okay. And then the passive voice is is action being is happening to the subject. So in other words, someone is hitting me. Right. That's the passive voice. I'm not doing anything, but somebody's hitting me. But the middle voice is me hitting myself. Just think about me hitting myself on the head. That's the middle voice. So th these three voices for verbs here are important because. They talk about the motive in whatever they're discussing. In this case, it's choosing, it's selection, right? So God is saying his selection is not because of God, uh, you know, favoring the object or uh, any passive uh, information that comes from the object. It is simply God's choice. Now, there is... There's been a long-standing argument between uh, Calvinists and Arminian people. So first there was Calvinists who said, hey, hey, we figured something out. This is what we figured out. Uh, by looking at the Greek words and all of this, we could see that uh, they understood this part about the middle voice and how important it was in Greek. So, but... The, the conclusions that the Calvinists came to is that God, because of his own choice, he, choose, he chose certain ones, and they said for salvation. So they said, well, he didn't choose people for salvation because they were good. He chose them because of his own particular sovereignty. They understood that, port, that point. So, but the conclusions of that point, that God chooses certain individuals for salvation, were disastrous. Because it made God responsible for their salvation. And people who are lost, God is responsible for them to be lost. And he gave them life, and now he makes them lost. Right? Well, there's no redemption for them. There's no hope for them. So it's disastrous. And that's not what God teaches when, he, when we talk about salvation. So to, to fight the Calvinist thinking, such the, Jacob, Jacobus... Arminius, I believe, was his name. He came up with a, a doctrine that said, no, no, that's not true. God looked down the corridors of time and he saw that people were going to do good works and, and he chose them. Yeah. So Arminian theology, generally, when it first came out, did not believe in eternal security because it if it was based on their works then their works could go sour and they could be lost so when it came to arminians it was real arminians only came along to fight what calvinism taught so that's how it all went down so one 
but the conclusion that the Arminians came to was a better conclusion in their mind. At least salvation depended on whosoever will, let them come. But they had a problem. They were saying, okay, well, if you could choose uh, to be saved, you could also choose to be lost. You know, it, they had some problems. But in their mind, they were working out the problems that the Calvinists uh, grossly had, which was that God is responsible for people going to the lake of fire with no recourse. But one thing the Calvinists had right was the middle voice part. God didn't choose people because he knew what they were going to do. He chose people because it was his sovereign choice to do so. That's the point. And so, of course, we reject the, both the Calvinist stance and both the Arminianist stance. Now, we should know that, you should know, prior to this conversation, and this happened way back uh, in the 15th and 16th century, uh, that there have been many variations of Calvinism and many variations of Arminianism. There are, a lot, there are some Arminians who say, okay, we believe that God did look down the corridors of time and see certain that people were going to believe, so he chose them. That's why he chose them for salvation, because he saw that they would be, uh, you know, believing. And that's wrong, because it's not about salvation. But then there are Arminians who say that, yeah, we believe in eternal security. But they still hold the view that God looked and it's about salvation. Uh, so we should know, that don't just say, okay, uh, if you're an Arminian person, then that means you don't believe in eternal security. That's not true anymore. It used to be true way back when it first came out and that was their teaching. Not true anymore. And we got to give people the, the right to stand or fall based on their beliefs what they choose to believe. And don't label them as Arminianists or Calvinists. Let them, uh, if you want to label yourself as that, then it gives us an opportunity to level the scriptures and see, uh, you know, how they fare. So it's the middle voice. Well, that's key. We believe it's the middle voice because God is sovereign. He, uh, he didn't choose people because of some supposed goodness in them. Right? So, uh, and then what, let's finish out the rest. Is from this is from another word it means to select basically to make a choice to choose out chosen, and that ek, loge, ek means out of, right? And that's that's part of ek. Uh, as we look at both of those words, they have the ek choosing out of what? Out of a group. God chose just like it says for those he foreknew he also. To, uh, predestined, right, for those. So, so it's out of a group, but there are certain individuals in that group that God chooses out. He says, I'm going to create Israel, and uh, your descendants shall be it's like the stars in the sky. Just look up. Uh, he, he, certain individuals he's choosing out of other individuals, or we can look at the church. God says anyone at the, in this age who believes in Christ is, um, is baptized and identify with the person of Christ. Now, God, before you could be baptized and identify with the person of Christ, 
you had to be chosen in him before the creation of the world. So the action of you believing doesn't somehow get you identified with Christ. God cho choosing you from eternity past and then selecting you to be born in this particular time is why you happen to be in Christ right now. Not just because you believe. Lots of people believe. After the church age is over, people will believe, but they won't be in Christ. There won't be any baptism of the Spirit. So it is God's sovereignty that allows us to be who we are as it relates to our calling. Okay, so that's election. Let's talk a little bit more, but there's a few more points to make. So in order that God's purpose in election might continue, and this is point number four, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So we're going to uh, talk about these points and we're going to wrap it up. So God's righteousness cannot be compromised in salvation. So think about it. So God has to make sure that he does not see any merit in the human race before he gives them salvation. He, otherwise, he'll be compromising his own righteous standard. And that is the true also when it comes to election. God's righteous standard is on the line there as well. So Israel fought to say, wait a minute, God, you can't do that. You owe us. God doesn't owe you. <laughs> you are a recipient of God's grace. He didn't. Grace is not because God owes you something. You are condemned, right? You're not worthy of anything. So, in, and just in, as it is in salvation, there is grace when it comes to God's sovereign choice. He, it, it does not depend on a person, their works, but it depends on the one who calls. That's God. It's not because of works. God is trying to tell us in every which way he can uh, well, he's trying to tell Israel, and we're learning th through their f folly. He's trying to tell them every which way he can that, that his call had nothing to do with them. Like, they don't earn it. Now, God doesn't owe them something. Well, if he made promises to them, let's just state this. If he made promises to them, he does owe them for those unconditional promises to, be, to come to pass. And we know that Israel does have a future. So just like we read in Romans 11, uh, as for you, for you, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. Now notice, because they don't believe in Christ. These are unbelieving Jews that are on the earth. They're enemies. But he says, as far as the election is concerned, they are beloved on account of patriarchs. So God made promises to the Jew. If he doesn't fulfill those promises, then he has violated something. But, you know, and it's, a, it's in the theology of a lot of people. They call it replacement theology. And some of these things we can talk more about when we get into questions and answers because we have time for back and forth. But this replacement theology says that the church replaces Israel. So they say all the promises that were given to national Israel are now fulfilled in the church, which, which does not make any sense. And uh, it, it literally is 
them retelling what God's promises are. God was very specific when he gave those promises to, those, to, to the people he called Israel. Israel did not fail uh, from the standpoint of God withdrawing the promises. That's why we read, even though they're enemies in Romans 11, they are beloved on account of the patriarchs. So God loves them because they're in his plan. Right? This, the Jew still has a place in his plan. And, there, and after the rapture of the church, there has to be unbelieving Jews on the earth. And God, he will continue to be faithful for the promises that he's called them, not for salvation. So, so God's righteousness cannot be compromised. And that's one of the reasons why, just like when we think about salvation, they can't be compromised. And it's the same in election. You, you don't have God by the tail. God doesn't owe you uh, because of your thoughts about what he can and cannot do. So here, let's just point, break it down in B. Point B, therefore, God does not owe you anything, anyone, anything. So here it is. Israel had two clear problems. Let's just lay them out. One, Israel thought they, were, they merited salvation by the works of the law. We already saw Romans 3, 9, and 20. And notice... God, uh, the Apostle Paul was speaking directly to Jews. Gentiles didn't even have the law. So when it came to salvation, you, you being a Jew, you, call, you having the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob does not benefit you at all. You're still under sin. And that's, we're born in, in sin. And they can't do anything about it because their Jewishness or the fact that they belong to the nation Israel. So the only way to receive righteousness, the only way to be reconciled to God is through faith, which is non-meritorious faith in Christ. So that's clear. But Israel thought they merited salvation by their works. They thought that was one of the big problems Israel had. And they could not see past it. it they were attempting to earn it. Point number, the, the second point that Israel had, Israel assumed that their calling was based on their having the law and their attempts at keeping it. <clears throat> this is why we saw those scriptures in 9.6, right, which said, uh, it is not as though God's word had failed. For all, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So, so that's an objection. Where is Paul getting that from? He's getting it from the thinking of Jews. They're trying to say, that if you keep calling the church like, if you keep saying that the church is called and we're not, then we're saying, we're going to claim that God, your word has failed. That's what we're going to claim. And of course, we don't believe that the word has failed, but we're trying to let you know that you ought to believe in the Mosaic law and you need to be under the calling that God has called us. This new calling that you're talking about, we reject it, is what they're saying. So, and then 11.1, I ask then, Paul says, has God cast away his people which he foreknew? Now, in some theologies, he has, right? We were talking about the replacement theology, right? Now, the replacement theology is not just in one denomination. It might be spread across, across many denominations. That thought may be carried forward in 
and used as doctrine for many different denominations, but not here. Because what we believe is God's word will come to pass, right? Israel has a future. Right now, God is dealing with the church. He's calling out many sons into glory. But right after that, he's going to continue with uh, national Israel. He's going to continue to form Israel. Uh, and then uh, God will come in the millennium. Israel does have a, pl a place on this earth. So it's important. So th that's those are the two main issues that Israel has. They think, first, they think they are meriting salvation. Uh, they're getting righteous by keeping the law. And then they think, foul, God, you can't call the church. You can't do away with Israel. We're the chosen. We're predestined. We're foreknown. We're elected. Right? All those two problems Paul is dealing with. So point number three, further, God reminds Israel that their information was based on his sovereignty. I'm sorry, I said their information. Their formation was based on his sovereignty. And he is free to have a plan beyond Israel. Israel thought, hey, nothing can change. This is it. But they didn't know anything about the mystery. And they limit God to Israel. Right? They limit God to whatever uh, Israel's purpose is. God could have a different purpose. He could have a purpose that he hadn't revealed. And now he is revealing and it does not contradict who Israel was or what Israel will finally be. Israel will be everything he, he called them to be. And, and yet, at this point in time, it looks like, well, they're, they're not a nation. Those people over there in Israel right now are not a nation under God. Those are not the answer. Those people are not the answer to what God has prophesied. Right now, God is still calling out many sons in the glory. That's what's going on right now. Later, after the church age is over and we're raptured, God will continue working with Israel. That is the theology. So he has a plan that is beyond Israel. Israel thought, hey, we, we are the... No, God is saying, this is the plan. And it was hid in God. Point C, and we're closing. God's choosing Jacob over Esau, who is the firstborn, before the twins were born, demonstrates his sovereignty. So that's how we want to wrap that up and see this as the sovereignty of God at work. The person of God, able to make decisions and have a plan. Unfortunately, a lot of people today don't think that God can, can make decisions and do uh, what he wants to do. As I said, it's all about them. Their life on this temporal earth, right? This temporal life, which is like but a vapor. But all God is doing is focused on making them happy, providing for them, making sure they have every creature comfort that is possible. They don't have no bills. They have all the money they need. They have all the healing they possibly can have and all the everything that they could ever want. That is not the case at all. In this world, you will have trouble. And we need to recognize it is not about our plans. And just like John the Baptist, he must, John's, he must decrease and Christ must increase. And that's where we are. 
right? We come into this whole understanding with those thoughts that it's all about us. It's egocentric. But, but ultimately, we come to learn through humility that it's not all about us. It's about God and his plan, his eternal purpose, what he's doing. And when we begin to now see the Bible, you know, past and future, based on what God has revealed to us, it begins to make sense. It's not just about us and our selfishness, our sin nature, uh, desiring whatever we want. It's about God's choice, his plan. And then through humility, and then we come to love that plan and become devoted to that plan. And after a while, you'll think that that is your plan. (laughs) You will become so enamored and and so for it that you will think, hey, this is my plan. This is what I'm about. And that's what God has done in the transformation process. We'll continue to to talk about this next week. And um, uh, we will end this session, but we will be right back here next week. Let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father, for this session that we've had. We pray that what we have said is clear and that others can come to the understanding of what these verses actually mean when they approach them. Father, we thank you for those who are listening, those who have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. All this we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who blazed the trail. Everything is about our Lord, and we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.